Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. This is one of those moments that's indelibly etched on my mind. Um, It goes back to the fall of 2003, uh, a conversation I had at lunch with uh, Dave McMurtry. Um, it actually was just on the other side of the freeway over here at the Pot Belly Deli. I, it's so ingrained in my mind um, as one of those moments in which I lost all hope. Um, we had been uh, spent over six years um, working with this, working through this process of trying to develop the property that we meet in now uh, as a permanent home for our church family. When we first started the church, we started in our living room. Um, kind of outgrew that, moved into the old post office downtown, outgrew that, moved into a warehouse. And we had been in a warehouse for about eight years at that point. And, and, and we had been giving and working through this whole process. We had dealt with the city of Benicia. We had dealt with the county, Solano County. I'd gone through a whole annexation process. We had gone through design review and um, zoning and permitting and all of this stuff. And, and then we had actually finalized our plans and sent them out to the contractor and had started to give, get bids back. And then, um, and, and through all of this, we had actually done two three-year capital campaigns in which our people had made pledges and given above and beyond regular giving, just above and beyond all of that, sacrificially to this building project. And over those six years, we had raised about a million and a half dollars, which I thought was a great great amount of money to have and then we got the actual estimates from the contractor and I remember sitting at lunch as Dave gave me those numbers and the numbers came back at over five million dollars and my heart sank no my heart didn't sink it was like someone reached into my chest found a plug somewhere and pulled it out because my heart didn't just sink it went all the way down the drain (laughs) And I, I had never had such a hopeless feeling in my life. Because how in the world could I possibly go back to this group of people who had bought into this vision, who had given sacrificially, who had given above and beyond all of their regular giving with this whole dream of having a home for our church family and go back to them and say, oops. I felt totally as a failure, as a leader. And, and it was like all the hope that I had had totally drained out of me. Well, of course, here we are this morning meeting in this place, and God had other answers for us. But at that moment, I had never felt so hopeless in my life. And you may be here today, and you've experienced some things in this last week or this last month or even in this past year that drained you completely, and you feel like you have no hope. And those experiences are very, very real. And as we start out 2015, I want to teach you some things that I have learned about hope over the last 11 years. Many of these things today we're going to be talking about are very, very practical. We started this series last week just talking about what is hope and what are the essentials of it and and what does it look like. And, And today we're going to start talking about how do you raise that level of hope in your life. And a lot of it is based on this book by Ray Johnson called The Hope Quotient. Uh, we had a number, limited number of these copies available. Uh, we sold them out last week, but you can still get it online. You can get the e-version. It's cheaper. Um, but I highly recommend it, especially as you start this new year. If you want to raise the level of hope, your hope quotient, if you will, in your life, there are some very practical steps that you can take. And today we're going to look at the first three of seven um, that Ray Johnson outlines. And there are things that I have found true to my own life. And they are great biblical principles. And they're based on the life of Jesus. 
And so we're going to be looking at those today. But I want to start with this idea of hope and, and kind of get us all focused in on this thing. Because here's one of the big lessons that I learned through all of this. Is that my level of hope ultimately is up to me. In many ways, you are responsible for your own level of hope. By the choices that you make and by the one that you put or the things that you put your hope in. And the Bible's really clear about that. All through Scripture, you find this over and over again. Bible talks about this idea of hope, particularly in the Psalms, most of which were written by David through all the ups and downs of his life. And very often he referred to and cried out for hope from God. And there's one verse that I'd like us to read out loud together as we get together and get started this morning. Um, Psalm 33, verse 22. We'll put it up on the, on the screen here. I'd like you to read this out loud with me, if you would. May your unfailing hope, love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Okay, I messed that one up. So let's try it again. <laughs> I can't read. Um, May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. There's two things about that. One of them says we know where the object of our hope comes from. It's in the love of God. But that there is a choice that we make to put our hope in him. So how do you do that? How, how do you learn to put your hope and grow your hope in God? And that's what we're going to look at. And, and we're going to look at it through the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, because if there was anyone who lived this life on this earth with the greater sense of burden and with the greater sense of mission and purpose, I can't think of anyone. And yet with all of that that he carried throughout his life, he carried it with a high level of hope in which he was able to instill in others. And so we're going to look at three very, very practical ways in which you can raise your level of hope as we head into this new year. And the first one starts very simply with this. Take time to recharge your batteries. Take time. Make time in your schedule to recharge. Jesus did this. As his popularity increased and as his ministry increased and more and more demands we made on his time and on his attention, he had to make time. In fact, there's one instance recorded in the book of Mark where, where he had spent a particularly busy day. And it says that because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, them being his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. How many know that the demands of life can be draining? <laughs> yeah. Just, just the pace of life at which we tend to run can be draining on us. John Ortberg tells the story of when he, he was starting a, a, a new place of ministry. And it was a very a crucial time in his life. And he went to one, someone who had been one of his spiritual mentors. And he said, you know, I'm entering into a phase that's going to be very, very demanding on me. And I, and I just feel like my, my batteries are running low. And I, and I need some strategy on how to enter this new phase of ministry for me. And he said, could you give me some help? And the spiritual mentor that he had said this. He says, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And as he tells the story, he said, okay, wrote that down really quick. Okay, okay, I got that one. Now, what else do I need? <laughs> he said, there is nothing else. You need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And then he makes this distinction. He says, there is busyness, which is filled with all the activities, but hurry, hurry is an issue of the heart. 
It's an issue of the soul. It's that inner driving pace at which we run our lives. And you need to make time and schedule time for renewal in your life. Because life is just the pace of life. Not to mention the demands and the experiences and the events of life. Um, a couple of psychologists by the name of, of Holmes and Rahi um, developed what they called the, um, the life event stress test. Anybody heard of this? Okay, it, it, you, some of you have seen this. Um, they actually go through a lot of different um, events in life and, and assign a numerical value to them at the level of stress that they put upon your life. And it and starts like with, with the death of a loved one, death of a spouse. That's like worth 100 points right there. And it goes on down to having a baby, to getting married, to getting a new job, and all the way down to Christmas. How many know Christmas can be a stressful event in your life, okay? That's worth 12. But it is. It's a stressful event. And, and, and they say, now what you do is you go through the last 12 months of your life, add them all up, and then just see where your totals lie. And they, have, um, they break it down. And if you have 300 or more points, they, they, they say what you are living at is, is a major life crisis level. I used to take this test every January. I just go back over the last year and add up all of my points. I quit doing that because every year I was at major life crisis level. I thought it's better if I don't know. You know the, the stress, the test itself was giving me stress. <laughs> it's just... We live at this pace of life, and there's events that happen in our lives, some that we bring on ourselves, some that just happen to us, but they are demands and draining on our life. And not only are there events and circumstances, there are people. There are, you know, have you noticed there are some people in your life you just love being around? After you spent an hour or two with them, you, go be- you just go home feeling better, you know, just replenishing relationships. And then there are those not so much. Uh, Rick Warren calls them EGRs, extra grace required, okay, relationships. Anybody have any of those in your life? Yeah? Okay. Okay, if you're sitting next to somebody who raised a hand, I won't go any further with that. It's just the demands of life can be draining. And you need to schedule time to replenish and recharge. Think about Jesus. He had a group of 12 disciples that you might consider to be the slow learners class. He had constant demands on his time and his attention. And along with that, he had a group of critics that followed him everywhere he went. If there was anybody who needed time to replenish, it was Jesus. And he did that. It says in Luke 5 that the news about him spread all the more so the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed from their sicknesses. But Jesus, it said, often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Listen, if Jesus needed time to recharge, what makes us think that we could go through life without that? You go back to creation, God at creation instituted a rhythm for our life that every seventh day was to be a day of rest. And then in case we didn't get that, he actually made a commandment that says, six days you shall work and on the seventh day you shall rest. That is probably the single most violated commandment in our American society. I was talking with someone this, just this last weekend saying they started a new job in November. This was the first weekend they had off. All through the Christmas season, not a day off. 
You can't live at that pace of life. And it's not just about rest and resting your body. It's about replenishing your soul. See, that's what Jesus, he withdrew to a quiet place, but he also withdrew to spend time with the Father. You need to schedule and make a part of your regular routine times in which you can stop and pay attention to God's presence in your life. That's why our weekend worship gatherings are so important. They're so vital. Because you need at least an hour in your week in which you step back and realize there is a God and it is not me. And he is in control and I am not. And he is the source of my hope. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. You need to make time to recharge. And then the second one is learn to raise your expectations. Raise your expectations. How many are familiar with this guy? Those of you who don't know him, let me introduce you to Eeyore, okay? If you're familiar with Winnie the Pooh, Eeyore is, well, he is the antithesis of hope, okay? When somebody greets him in the morning, says, good morning, Eeyore, his answer was, if it is a good morning, which I doubt. (laughs) There's a lot of Eeyore in all of us. See, one of the greatest enemies of hope is fatalism. Fatalism is that feeling that nothing is ever going to change. It is never going to get any better. And there is nothing that I can do that's ever really going to make a difference. So why bother? And sometimes when we get beat down by life or the experiences of life, we get to that point where we feel like it's never going to get better. It's never going to change. There's nothing I can do about it. One of the things you can do is to start raising your expectations. Dave McMurtry, I mentioned earlier, he is one of the most hopeful people I know. Through all of that process and then into the building project, and we actually did get this building built, and, and you know, I'm kind of not particularly looking forward to another building project, but, but I am excited about it. So I got this love-hate thing with building projects. But Dave, through all of that, was one of the most helpful, hopeful and helpful people that I knew. And continues to be to the same. In fact, anytime we would come up against an obstacle or come up against something that looked like, oh, I don't know what we're going to do about this, his answer was always, oh, this is nothing. I said, no, Dave, this is something. And his answer was, no, this is nothing. This is nothing. There's some people that are just naturally hopeful. There are others of us that just have to learn how to raise our expectations. And you can do that. Jesus did that. There's an encounter uh, uh, recorded in John uh, chapter 5. There was a man that he met by the pool of Bethsaida. The pool of Bethsaida um, was a gathering place in Jerusalem for those who were um, invalids or or disabled in some way. And it it was believed that when the water of the pool was stirred, that it was a stirring by by the wings of the angels. And if you could get into the water, the first person to get into the water after the water was stirred would be healed of whatever infirmity they had. And so there was this one guy who was laying by the pool of Bethsaida, and he had been there for years and years and years. 
And Jesus comes across him. And it says that when Jesus saw him laying there and lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Isn't that a dumb question? I mean, you know, if it were me, there's a bit of sarcasm in me. I would say something along the lines of, no, no, no. I just like to hang out by the pool and catch some rays, you know? What do you mean, do I want to get well? What am I doing here? Why would Jesus ask such a dumb question? Because it's a question of hope. This man had been so resigned to his fate in life, never really believing it was going to change. Although he would be laid by the pool, he never thought he would be able to be healed. And the question Jesus asked, before anything else, he did to raise his level of hope, before he could raise his level of faith. That's the question. Do you believe that it could be better? See, that's what Jesus was able to do. He was able to see beyond the way things were to see what they could be. There's another account in his life. After his time of uh, very meaningful ministry throughout the region of Galilee, he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes back there, but the welcome that he gets there is not what you expected. In fact, it says that when he got there, the talk around town was, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. No matter what he had done anywhere else, he comes home. He's like, ah, it's just Jesus. Ah, it's just Mary's son. Yeah, we know that kid. Yeah, he used to run around. He was kind of a crazy dude. They had no expectations of him. And it goes on and says, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. No expectations, no hope, no faith. And one of the things you can do to raise your level of hope is just to think of things can be better than they are. Particularly because God is involved. There is an inseparable link between faith and hope. We talked about this last week. They are, they are inseparably tied together. And without faith, there's no hope. And without hope, there very often is not faith. There's another encounter Jesus has with the father of a, of a man, uh, a boy who had been demon-possessed. And he comes to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Now, that, I think, is a matter of hope. Because I think sometimes hope is faith hanging on by its fingernails. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I'm going to hang on to it. And that's really what hope is. Hope gives us a reason to have faith talked to somebody after last week's uh, message and they were talking about you know it's not that I don't believe God can do something it's that I have a hard time believing he will do something and that very often is the is is the conundrum I think that's what's going on here when God is involved there is always hope always hope because one of the things that I have learned over the years is more important than the things that I hope for is the one that I hope in. Because knowing where my hope lies, if my hope is in Him, then even if all the other hopes and dreams 
kind of fall to pieces, there's still reason for hope. Lewis Smedes puts it this way. He says, the person who lives by faith trusts that good things can happen because God wants good things to happen and is able to make them happen, even when the odds are against them happening. God gives us reason to hope and have higher expectations because our hope is not in the thing we hope for. It's in the one we hope in. And the third thing you can do is learn to refocus on the future. See, hope is situated in the future. And so to raise your level of hope, you got to focus on the future. Um, when our kids were learning to drive, um, that responsibility fell to me. You know, they took driver's ed, but then they needed so many hours of practice time. And so that all fell to me because my wife was a nervous wreck. She just, she couldn't do it with somebody who didn't know what they were doing behind the wheel. And so that kind of fell to me. So we started off and we'd take them out here to the uh, business park on the weekends when nobody's around and we drive through parking lots that were empty and they couldn't do any damage. That's where we started. And then we graduated to kind of street driving a little bit. And then came the time to teach. And I remember very distinctly teaching my daughter how to get on the freeway. And the big lesson of getting on the freeway is you can't stop and wait for a break in traffic. You have to learn how to merge. And so one of the keys in merging is you need to know what's coming up behind you. So you have to look in your rearview mirror to see that there's an opening and find where it is. And so the first time, I remember very distinctly, we were getting on at the bottom of Rose Drive, getting on the 780 freeway, and we're coming onto the freeway. And, and I told her, now, make sure you look and make sure you're watching what's going on behind you. And so she's looking, and she, her eyes are glued to the rearview mirror. And as her eyes are glued to the rearview mirror, we are going forward, slightly drifting off to the shoulder. And I'm going... <laughs> Look in front of you, look in front of you, look in front of you. And she goes, but you told me to look in the rearview mirror. Not all the time. <laughs> Driving looking in the rearview mirror is not a good strategy. <laughs> Living your life looking in the rearview mirror is not a good strategy either. And a lot of times, a lot of times what keeps people from focusing on a better future is they're constantly looking at their past. Jesus was able to see beyond the way things were to what they could be. Think of the disciples that he called. He didn't call these men because of their accomplishments. He called them because of their potential. They were not the cream of the crop. They were not the top of their class. Ordinary guys, fishermen, tax collectors, just kind of a ragtag group of people. But he saw in every one of them, here is a group of people that I'm going to invest my life in because I see what they can be. And he took a guy named Simon who was pretty impetuous, impulsive, erratic at times, and reckless. And he changed his name. He says, your name is Simon, but I'm changing it to Peter. Peter means rock. There was nothing about this guy that exhibited any promise of rock. And yet Jesus saw it in him. And he said, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I think a lot of times we look at ourselves as Peter's. And, 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 and we don't see the potential. And we don't see how God could possibly use us. Sometimes we lose hope for the future because we're so bound to our past. 
I have screwed up so much, so badly, so many times. I don't deserve a good future. And that's where the grace of God comes in. And nobody is beyond hope because God sees beyond who we are to who we can be. And you have a better future, no matter what your present circumstances, no matter what your past, because God's grace is involved. It's another encounter Jesus had, this time with a woman that was brought to him by the religious leaders at the time. She had been caught in the act of adultery. They brought her before Jesus, and he said, this woman was caught in the very act. And the law of Moses says she should to be stoned. What do you say? And he sat down, and he looked at the crowd, and he said, let those among you who's without sin throw the first stone. And he just bent down and doodled in the sand. And one by one, the rocks fell from their hands, and they walked away. And Jesus looked up, and there was only, only the woman left. He said to her, where are your accusers? She said, there's no one, Lord. Then he said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. See, a lot of times when we talk about grace, we talk about forgiveness of our past. And that's a big, big part of it. Don't get me wrong. But did you notice what Jesus did there? He not only forgave her past, he also gave her a better future. You can change. You don't have to be that person anymore. You don't have to live that way anymore. You're forgiven. I don't condemn you. Now, move forward into a new life. See, that's the power of God's grace. That's what he brings to us. And because we have a gracious God who sees not just who we are or what we've been, but who we can become, then there is always hope for our future. And we can look forward confidently to a better future because God is involved and his grace is at work. And it doesn't matter what our past, what our present, there is still always hope. So that a man named Saul, who had spent a good deal of his life persecuting this fledgling church and dragging off Christians to be put to death, comes into an encounter with this gracious God who knocks him off his high horse, changes his name from Saul to Paul, and he goes on to be one of the biggest proponents of the Christian faith and the writer of most of our New Testament. And most of, most of our New Testament are letters that this man wrote to churches. And one of those letters to the church in Philippi, he writes these words, and it's his own experience. He writes, so forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on. It's a sentence of hope. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California. You